Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Well, it's a Friday night, the 18th of March, and we're trying to get this podcast out of the way before we both go on the road for a little while. And after having our own mock foreign policy debate just last month, this week we've got some actual speeches from the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, both given at the Lowy Institute last week, to analyse. So let's get right into it. We're going to begin with a speech given by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, delivered on Monday the 7th of March at Lowy. But perhaps before I do, Alan, I might ask you to set the scene and context for pre-election foreign policy speeches more generally. As we explained a few episodes ago, we have low expectations for substantive debate in this forthcoming election period. But having said that, can we still learn something from what leaders say? Oh, absolutely. I've always been a big believer in the usefulness of taking careful note of declaratory policy and the stump speech, because however simplified, it's where you will find a political message honed to primary elements. And that's certainly the case with both these speeches. As we discussed before, this is not the time in the political cycle for either party to break new ground or articulate subtle points, and neither of these speeches do that. But they do leave us in no doubt on a couple of issues. First, the government wants its record on national security to be one of the issues for voters in the election. And at the same time, the opposition wants to minimise any points of difference with the government, which it sees as a vulnerability for itself. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm absolutely certain there was no coordination on the speeches, but it's fascinating to see how structurally similar they are. Both of them agree that the times are difficult and dangerous, and they both use language that you could swap easily between the two of them. Mm. Both of them strongly condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Both are critical of China. Scott Morrison says these are the ways the Liberal National Government will ensure Australia is secure, and I want to quote them. Firstly, he says, by building our military capability for the new challenges of the 21st century, Secondly, by widening and reinforcing our webs of alignment, especially in the Indo-Pacific. And thirdly, by strengthening our national resilience at home with policies that reinforce both economic and national security goals into the future. And then later he says, let me touch on three areas where the government has worked to build such national resilience, cybersecurity, critical infrastructure protection, and sovereign manufacturing capability. So that's uh, Morrison, and he is Albanese. A Labor government will build a more secure, resilient Australia by supporting a stronger Australian Defence Force, prioritising better and smarter cybersecurity, shoring up our economic self-reliance, strengthening our communities and institutions, deepening our partnerships in the region and globally around the world, taking action on climate change. So climate change is the only point of difference here. Okay, well, let's get into the PM's speech to begin with. 
And look, consistent with what you said, Alan, my impression or my quick reaction to the speech was that it was just relentlessly framed through the lens of national security. And I think the thoroughly securitized nature of every issue was summed up by the Prime Minister towards the end of his speech, where he said, quote, if there is a simple message from my remarks today, it is that national security affects all Australians. It extends far beyond the prospect of fighting wars. It is about safeguarding our way of life, our access to amenities, liberties and essentials Australians rely on and enjoy. It is about seeking to shape the changing world we live in to promote peace, provide stability for people to live their lives and favour freedom. End quote. Now, as I think we said at the introduction, national security is, of course, commonly understood as a strength for the conservative side of politics in Australia and indeed elsewhere around the world. So this isn't a surprise. So, Alan, given that, was overall the speech consistent with your expectations? Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, the addition of the announcement of the plan to look at building a new submarine base on the East Coast, which was the announceable out of it, uh, the speech was maybe the fullest expression we've had of the Morrison view on national security. It's been honed over recent years, edited in some respects. We've, Ukraine invasion has been added and negative globalism has been toned down, but it's now fully owned and occupied by the speaker. It was a very comfortable speech, as befits a prime minister who's been well-tested now on the range of issues and who obviously feels that he owns them. I thought the overwhelming dominance of the national security frame that you talked about is seen in the PM's reference. He referred to the rise of so-called hybrid warfare that has stripped away the old boundaries that once separated the realms of defence, foreign policy, trade and investment, communications and other areas reaching deep into our domestic society. So in other words, and I don't think I'm drawing this out too far, almost all aspects of government activity can be seen as potential elements of war fighting and therefore of national security importance. That's really interesting, Alan, and I would observe that Australia is not the only country and the only government who is framing almost everything as potentially through the lens of national security. And of course, China is the first country that comes to mind on that score. Well, I'd also like to pick up on a couple of key themes from the speech. After opening with some comments about the floods, the Prime Minister began his substantive speech by saying that, quote, the world has entered a period of profound strategic challenge and disruption, and he references the invasion of Ukraine. But what followed then was, to my mind, arguably the most interesting portion of the speech, and I'm going to quote it in full, quote, our rules-based international order, built upon the principles and values that guide our own nation, has for decades supported peace and stability and allowed sovereign nations to pursue their interests free from coercion. This is now under assault. A new arc of autocracy is instinctively aligning to challenge and reset the world order in their own image. We face the spectre of a transactional world devoid of principle, accountability and transparency, where state sovereignty, territorial integrity and liberty are surrendered for respite from coercion and intimidation, or economic entrapment dressed up as economic reward. This is not a world we want for us, our neighbours or our region. It's certainly not a world we want for our children. The well-motivated, 
altruistic ambition of our international institutions has opened the door to this threat, just as our open markets and liberal democracies have enabled hostile influence and interference penetrate into our own societies and economies, end quote. Now, there are three elements to that extract that I want to pull out. The first is this phrase, arc of autocracy. Later in the speech, the PM talked about coming, quote, face-to-face with brutal autocratic aggression and coercion, end quote. And to me, altogether, this seems an almost Manichaean juxtaposition of Australia and its partners as the good guys versus the bad guys in the arc of autocracy, a phrase that, of course, recalls George W. Bush's axis of evil. What were your thoughts, Alan? Yeah, the allure of alliteration. (laughs) I thought as the PM was speaking that it's really more a blob of autocracy than an arc. (laughs) It it didn't seem to include more than Russia and China, and perhaps you could have made it more of an arc by extending it down to include Vietnam, but I didn't get the sense that that was in the PM's uh, mind. No. His language was strong here, and like you, I thought it was a bit Manichaean. One problem for Australia lies in the way Cold War terms like the West and the free world have made such a strong comeback after Ukraine. It's obviously language Europeans remember, but when Morrison talks about Western liberal democracies, he's really not talking in language that most of the countries around us identify with at all. All the ASEAN countries rank somewhere between flawed democracies and authoritarian states in the Economist Intelligence Unit's annual democracy index. Does Indonesia have a sense of being of the West? Not at all. So we have to find ways of speaking to and about our neighbours, which give us some means of communicating about shared aspirations for the international system, but which avoids that sort of language. Yeah, that's a great point, Alan, and sort of shows that momentum that can gather behind ideas that's really important in one context here in Europe can be problematic when transported elsewhere in the world. The second interesting idea for me was where this arc of autocracy could lead us. According to the Prime Minister, we face, quote, the spectre of a transactional world devoid of principle, accountability, and transparency, end quote. And so when I read that, my first immediate thought was, He's describing Donald Trump's vision for politics and international relations. Look, maybe Trump and his supporters might be less enthusiastic about the second half of this grim vision, where coercion causes the surrender of state sovereignty, territorial integrity, and liberty. But to me, there was a tension here with the once and perhaps future Trumpist movement. Did this dark vision make sense to you, Alan? Good point. It's, it is a Trumpist view he's rejecting, isn't it? Or at least the first part of it. And that's clearly not who he meant. He was talking about Russia and China. But even there, I believe the dystopian world he describes is an unlikely model, even for China. In any case, analytically, I don't think it's on the cards. The UN vote on Ukraine showed that the vast bulk of countries are highly resistant to the idea of surrender of state sovereignty and territorial integrity. Maybe civil liberties are a different matter, but that's certainly a core and almost universally held belief. Yes, and that actually leads to the third point, and, and this for me was the most interesting idea in the speech. 
where he said that the well-motivated, altruistic ambition of our international institutions had opened the door to this threat, and also that the openness of, of liberal democratic societies themselves had made them vulnerable to penetration. And Lowy's head, Michael Fullerlove, actually picked him up on this line in the Q&A, saying that those words had invoked for him the PM's infamous negative globalism speech from 2019. And Fully Love, sort of much like the point you just made about the UN vote, put to the PM that the world's and especially the EU's collective response to Putin's invasion was actually demonstrating international institutions at their best. The PM responded by saying, well, this is positive globalism, of course. And yes, we want institutions to deal with big economic and environmental challenges. But he continued to insist that there are still less helpful elements about how these institutions operate. To me, this sounded like the idea that we do need to jettison some of the elements of an open liberal set of institutions in order to save them, which is a tricky path to walk. Alan, I mean, can we keep positive globalism while getting rid of the negative bits, do you think? Yeah, look, before I go on, I just have to say kudos to Michael Fullylove because he managed very impressively in the questions to test both Morrison and Albanese politely but firmly on their policy positions and to draw out interesting responses, and that's no, no small skill. Indeed. I'm not at all sure what the PM was getting at here. He seems, as you were suggesting, to say that the West or the liberal democracies set up this world of international institutions and open markets for altruistic reasons, rather than because both a formal structure of multilateral bodies and open markets are four square in our own interests, and that we've been dudded by others, for which read China and Russia, who've taken advantage of our innocence or good nature by failing to internally reform or moderate or to assist the rest of us with big global challenges. Now, it's not clear what conclusions we're meant to draw from all this, except that we should stand firm and call out bad behaviour. And he ends with another line, quote, perhaps the scales are beginning to fall from the world's eyes also, at least I hope so. So there's an awful lot hinted at here, but unsaid. So like you, I was unable to divine what the ultimate point was here. Mm. Well, the last part of the speech overall that I wanted to touch on was the handling of China. There were a lot of veiled criticisms of Beijing, but when he called out China directly, it was on the issue of helping Russia. He said no country would have a greater impact on Russia than China, and therefore Beijing needed to step up. What did you make of this approach, Alan? He's right. I think, you know, China will have a greater impact on Russia than anyone else. My only real comment on this section is that he skirted over the fact, and Albanese did that later as well, that other countries with whom we have close relations, such as India, Vietnam and Indonesia, have also been less than full-throated in their, in their criticisms of Moscow. And although there was strong criticism of China for providing Russia with an economic lifeline through the purchase of wheat, there was nothing at all about European oil purchases, for example. But compared with some commentators and members of his own government who've been talking about this, he said, interestingly, that he sees China's relationship with Russia as instinctive and opportunistic convenient fellow travelling 
was another phrase he used rather than a partnership without limits and the the other sorts of things that have been talked about. Mm -hmm. Well, before we move on, the PM gave a second speech last week, this time at the Australian Financial Review Summit. And there was one passage in particular that caught my eye and is relevant for this podcast. Let me quote it. However, recent events have highlighted some important truths. Firstly, Global economics is downstream from global politics. A relatively open and free trade and financial order is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It never has been. The nature of the great power at the centre of our global systems matters decisively, together with their animating ideas and ideals. And secondly, as Martin Wolf observed the other day, The tectonic plates of geopolitics have shifted such that Western liberal democracies now need to manage strategic security in an overriding imperative for their economic policy. Now, this is what my government has always done, end quote. A few moments later, he added that, quote, and it is important to stress that strong national security and genuine economic security, they go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. End quote. Alan, would you say this logic would have important implications for Australian foreign policy? Oh, look, certainly does, because we're seeing here a reversal of the globalisation argument made by successive Australian governments from Bob Hawke onwards, including in the early years of this government. I can't tell you how many speeches I've read that have, have made the point. For years, we would hear Australian leaders talking about the way free and open trade and open economies could be used to drive global politics, opening the world to democratic influences. This was the whole argument of Davos man. Look, for me, the PM is right to say that a relatively free and open trade and economic system is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It was very much put in place by the United States at the end of the Second World War. And let's not forget, Australia was reluctant to see it at first. We wanted to stick with imperial preferences with the UK and were essentially strong-armed into it by Washington. And Albanese was on the same page here. But look, rather than the sort of idea of global economics being downstream from global politics, I prefer his second formulation, which was that the two go hand in hand, and there's no doubt about about that. Mm. There's actually a highly influential and prominent vein of international relations research and scholarship, which argues that open markets, and for that matter, a stable global financial system, are indeed a function of hegemonic power, and it's actually called hegemonic stability theory. Yeah. Basically, economic openness and financial stability are theorised as a kind of public good which need the material support and investment from a hegemon to be sustained over time. And it's a, a highly contested debate. And my summary point would be that even if it's true that economics is downstream from politics, the political benefits of openness and the rules-based order that tends to be a corollary of, of openness are patent for a country like Australia. So while it may be in the interest of some actors to exploit openness, bringing down the larger system would be an even worse outcome. And look, I don't think the PM would disagree. I mean, he talked about the importance of the rules-based order elsewhere in that speech, including on the sensitive topic of managing supply chain risks. But it's a point that bears emphasising. 
And if it's true that political power creates and defends openness, then it's the job of Australia and our partners to marshal that power accordingly, rather than be defensive and, and try to work out ways to, to you know, sort of defend against these risks. Anyway, let's turn to Albanese's speech. It was a couple of days later on the 10th of March, the leader of the opposition spoke at the Lowy Institute. The first two sentences of his speech made it clear that he was also thoroughly embracing a national security frame. Quote, the security of our nation is the most solemn responsibility of any government and the first priority of every prime minister. Today, I want to take the opportunity to share my vision for an Australia that is stronger, safer and more resilient, more prepared to meet the challenges and threats of a less certain world. He then extracted a wartime speech from Labor Prime Minister John Curtin in March 1942 that had been broadcast for American radio, which contains the colourful phrases, bloody steam, deathly hail, and the tide of war flows madly. Quite tone setters, Alan, did he really have no choice, do you think, but to adopt this frame? And what did you make of the speech overall? Uh, well, it was obviously carefully crafted to avoid, as we were saying earlier, opening up any lines of attack from the government. And his decision to begin with John Curtin in 1942 was designed to remind listeners from the start of Labor's record in defending Australia in time of war. His critique of the government over overruns in defence expenditure was quite effective. 17 major programs running $4.3 billion over budget. Though I have to say that I strongly suspect you could have found similar criticism <laughs> for any government in living memory if you tried. But the argument that it's not the amount of money allocated to defence that matters, but the capabilities actually delivered was a balance to the government's line that under the last Labor government, defence expenditure during one budget fell as a proportion of GDP to the lowest level since the Second World War. Um, Albanese repeated that our long-standing alliance with the United States is a central pillar of our foreign policy. I've often made the point before that one of the really distinctive things about Australia as an alliance partner of the US is that both major parties claim the origin story. Albanese did that again, as I noted, by beginning the speech with Curtin and the turn to America. The coalition began with Menzies and the signature of the ANZUS agreement. Even so, I, I think there's a tonal difference between Albanese's comments that a, quote, Labor government would be an energetic and trusted alliance partner, close quote, and the sort of the, the language of the forever partnership that Scott Morrison has talked about. Another interesting difference, I wouldn't overplay it, is that the Brits get less of a part in the Albanese speech than in Morrison's. Mm. Look, I was really struck by the opening few minutes of the speech, which if you read them you know, without any context, could have easily been given by a coalition leader. This, I guess, gets to your point at the beginning of how similar speeches were. Albanese used phrases like, Australia's responsibility to act in our own interests. And remember that speech by Morrison that was entitled In Our Interest. He also said, quote, the, the principle of sovereignty has remained at the core of Labor's approach and that we treat national security as the first priority with our national interest at its core. Albanese also said that, quote, national security is above politics, end quote. And I guess that really hammers home that he was going to try everything he could to 
minimize the chance that national security could be used as an electoral weapon. But doing this is not without consequences, right? Since it saw him adopt many of the frames that the PM is well known for now, especially this emphasis on sovereignty. And it also meant that he really securitized everything, including, for example, keeping Australians safe from financial collapse and environmental disaster. And look, it wasn't until he invoked a core theme of Biden's presidency and his candidacy before that, the unity and health of one's own democracy, that you started to see some political lines of attack other than the ones you mentioned about sort of wasteful spending and so forth. Because Albanese linked these to the government's refusal to establish a federal anti-corruption commission. Yeah, that's right. And as you said, Alan, the only other clear difference was on climate change, which as we've discussed previously is as much a domestic policy agenda as it is foreign policy. And look, it was the last thing he talked about in the speech. When asked by Michael Fullove in the Q&A how Labor sought to distinguish itself, Albanese said that, quote, historically, Labor's been more prepared to reach out to our region, end quote. But he didn't actually directly criticize the present government for its outreach. And he, look, he mentioned the marginalization of DFAT and political appointments to ambassadorships. And of course, as we've discussed, he was critical of execution. But these are not substantive differences. And look, Alan, We've both said on this podcast a few times that our major criticism of the government has been in execution rather than in substance. So this speech would accord with that logic. Did he need to do more to propose a distinctive vision? For his own purposes, not really. He needed to demonstrate that he could be trusted on national security issues. And look, the sad truth is, and I'm sorry to have to break this to you, podcast listeners, that foreign policy and national security turn out not to be at the front of mind for our fellow Australians. So very few votes, and especially the votes of undecided voters, are going to turn upon it. So Albanese really didn't need to talk up the rest of the agenda. In, in Penny Wong, he has a shadow minister for foreign affairs who's absolutely on top of her portfolio and set out policy quite extensively. So he can rely on her and Brendan O'Connor, the Shadow Defence Minister, for the content. It would have been interesting for him to go further. But again, this is clearly not the time for distinctive uh, visions. And as you note, by the way, our 2020 Word of the Year, Sovereignty, made starring appearances in both speeches. Uh, Look, you mentioned DFAT. I just want to make the point again that foreign policy as a distinct part of statecraft didn't get much of a look in anywhere. The PM referred a bit dismissively at one point to, quote, the dance of diplomacy, implying that it was a sort of decorative sideshow Mm -hmm. to the main game. Anthony Albanese, in reply to Michael Fully Love, said, as you noted, positive things about DFAT, but he also made references to, quote, soft diplomacy. So there's a real uphill battle for foreign affairs here in persuading politicians of all sorts that the task of foreign policy, prizing open space in the international system to ensure that at any point Australian interests and values are protected and that we always have choices rather than finding ourselves in the position of being forced or coerced into certain positions, that that's as difficult, hard-edged and hard-headed as any dimension of uh, of government. Well said, Alan. One last point 
where I did see a little bit of difference was in how Albanese talked about China. For example, the Prime Minister did not mention human rights in his speech, whereas Albanese said, quote, both at home and in its international posture, the China of Xi Jinping has demonstrated a harsher authoritarianism and more strident nationalism. This has manifested itself most recently in the takeover of Hong Kong, repression of human rights in China, and the militarization of the South China Sea, end quote. And as I said earlier, Morrison was critical, and of course, he and his government ministers have not been shy at all about criticizing China in other contexts, but not in this particular speech last week. So Alan, was this just the inevitable one-upmanship that Labor was required to demonstrate to neutralize, as we've described previously, the immensely disappointing Manchurian candidate style of attacks that have been coming from some parts of the government? Yeah, yeah. Look, the point is Albanese needed to state the criticism of China and Morrison could take it as red. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, we'll wrap up and finish with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Uh, We need to remember that while we're all preoccupied with Ukraine and Russia and China, the rest of the world is always out there and it always has the capacity to further complicate our lives without notice. So we need to keep an eye on that as well. And I wanted to recommend a really wonderful interview by Graham Wood in The Atlantic with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known, the Saudi crown prince and effective ruler. The article is called Absolute Power, and I guess Saudi Arabia would be another omission from the arc of autocracy. But it's a really fascinating analysis of what's going on in Saudi at the moment. Thanks, Alan. I'm going to go right off the reservation here and recommend, I guess, the, the video of a stage show that I watched recently called American Utopia. And the the architect behind it and the main performer is David Byrne, who of course was from the sort of 70s and 80s group Talking Heads. And I've checked, it is available to stream uh, here in Australia. But I also want to recommend one particular song, one performance from the show, because most of the songs in the show are former Talking Heads songs or there are other compositions by David Byrne. And one in particular is called One Fine Day, which he wrote with frequent collaborator Brian Eno and released back in 2008. And look, to speak on a personal note, a lot of people who are very close to me and dear to me have been struck down in various ways by COVID-19 in, in recent days. And this song has become my own personal pandemic anthem. And it's actually sort of helped lift me up and make me feel a bit better in difficult times. So I'm actually going to take the liberty here of turning this podcast into a spoken word affair and finish today by reading out the lyrics to the song. It's not very long because they work just as well as a poem, I think, as they do as a song. Saw the wandering eye inside my heart, shouts and battle cries from every part. I can see those tears. Everyone is true. When the door appears, I'll go right through. In a small dark room where I will wait, face to face, I find, I contemplate. Even though a man is made of clay, everything can change that one fine day. Then before my eyes, is standing still. I beheld it there, a city on a hill. I complete my tasks, one by one. I remove my masks when I am done. Then a peace of mind fell over me in these troubled times 
we still can see. We can use the stars to guide the way. It is not that far, the one fine day. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. And beautifully done, Darren. And next time, <laughs> listeners, Darren will sing the whole version to us. No, no, it was a great to end on. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for her help this week and also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We're going to take a bit of a break, but we'll talk to you again before too long. Farewell. Thank you.